Thank you, Joanna. Thank you so much, Sydney, for that wonderful uh, song, Preparing Our Heart for the Word of God. Take your Bible, turn with me to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, there are some available in the chairs in front of you. Also, you can look on the back of your bulletin. We've actually fit the entire text today's message as our scripture reading, so you'll have that if you don't have a Bible, but I encourage you to pick one of those Bibles up on the back on your way out. There should be some Bibles there that would be a gift from us to you if you don't have one. We'd love to make that yours. James chapter 2 is where we are, starting in verse 14. Have you ever, have you ever met Christians who claim to believe God? Okay, they claim to trust God. They claim to know God. And yet, their life is ruled by doubt, anxiety, and fear, because they're not sure if God really has what's best in their mind. Is that person's faith working? This idea of working faith has its seed form all the way throughout the book of James. In fact, I I told you to turn to chapter 2, but you might go back to chapter 1 for a minute, because I want to show you some of the, the ideas that have been presented in the context of the book of James as it relates to this, look at chapter 1, verse 3. He talks about the testing of your faith produces patience. How we live out our faith commitments will be tested, and that will produce fruit. In fact, he talks later in that chapter about needing wisdom. We ask in faith. Let him who needs wisdom ask in faith. Verse 6, nothing wavering. Faith is an essential part of living the Christian life, not just saving faith. We're talking about active, sanctifying faith. In fact, later in the book, he says that we are to be uh, doers of the Word, verse 22, and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And when you look into the perfect law of liberty, we see problems need to be addressed. He says, go and act on it. Don't be like that foolish man who looks at the mirror and goes away having forgotten what he has seen. And then in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, do not hold this faith, the Lord of glory, with partiality. How we live out our faith should not have any partiality. And we talked about that in my last message from James. You see, when it comes to people, and this is just an essential problem we all have, is that talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. People talk big. Talk is easy. Sometimes even we fool ourselves into thinking that by talking about something, we've actually accomplished something. Uh, people do this often. In fact, my wife and I were discussing this recently. There was some, and I looked for it, but I could not find the article. I was hoping to come with the, uh, as they say, come with the receipts, you know, come with the, come with the, the, um, the quote here. But there was, there was, a, there was a, a study done that said that people who talked about their diets actually did less well as people who didn't talk about their diets. Because when people talked about their diets, what happened was is that in their mind, they got the same benefit as if they were actually doing their diet. (laughs) But they actually weren't doing it. They were just talking about it. And so they were talking about dieting, but not dieting. And I find that to be the case with a lot of Christians. We talk a big talk, but sometimes when it comes to living out truth, we, we don't. Worse yet, when it comes to truth, people will sometimes believe truth. They'll assent to truth without trusting or resting in that truth. They don't live on what they talk about. We talk about people's bark being worse than their bite. This is the case with this as well. Others believe in the power of words, that words themselves are enough, that it doesn't matter if we solve the problem as long as we got to talk about the problem and show empathy about the problems. I've even heard on, in our culture today people say, well, your words are violence. Your words 
have an impact. And, and, and the Bible, though, draws a clear distinction here that there is a difference between what you say and what you do. In fact, in the topic of practical Christian living, I can't think of anything more practical than this. This issue is so important. The Christian is called to live a life of faith where his faith about God and about God's plans work themselves out in very practical ways. God calls you to live a life of faith, a faith that is not just merely agreeing about trusting. It's a faith that trusts. In fact, sometimes people who just agree and don't trust are not having faith at all. They're just trying to avoid truth. In fact, faith is the means by which we embrace truth. Let's have a word of prayer and look at what this passage has to say to us today. Father, we do ask your grace and wisdom and understanding as we ask for the Spirit of God to be here among us, moving in and among us, and the truth of God reverberating from our hearts, that as you speak to us through your word, that we could identify areas where we have failed in this area. And Father, I pray you give us the grace through the Spirit of God to lean on you and to trust you when we don't feel like trusting. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to to rest in you through the power of your grace. We thank you for the song about grace. Everything we do is through your grace. It's the gift of God, and we're so grateful for that. And so today, Lord, we humbly come before you and ask you to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see um, in this passage, you'll notice your outline in your bulletin will give you some help to follow along this passage. We'll see a faith that works has several characteristics. Number one, we see it's a profitable faith, a profitable faith, faith that works benefits everyone who comes in contact with it. Let's see what we uh, begin in verse 14. He says, what does it profit? What benefit is there, my brethren, speaking to believers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Let's start with a question here. Notice how it begins. What is the argument? What benefit? Can there be a profit in speech alone? Can there be a profit in words? Words. This man says he has faith, but his actions that follow his speech do not reflect the reality behind those words. Can that man, uh, is that man have any profit? I think uh, some translations say, what good is it? I think the best translation here is what our New King James says, what benefit or what profit is there? The idea here is a connection to advantage. What advantage does it bring someone to say without doing? What, how, does, how does that claim work itself out? Well, he says, look at the audience here. He's written to believers. I don't think Jesus is indicating or intending to cause his audience here, here brothers and believers, to doubt their salvation. James is not saying, I, I, I want you to doubt your salvation. What he's saying is, I want you to, to evaluate your works, evaluate your living. Is it in accordance with your faith? And and throughout this book, the book of James is written to believers. And so look at at this brother. I say this brother is conflicted because there's a conflicted brother whose life is in conflict with his doctrinal confession that Jesus is Lord. His doctrinal confession, he would admit, he would say, Jesus is Lord, but his works, his life is not demonstrating this. His his words say one thing and his deeds are doing something else. Look at verse verse 14 carefully. Notice the the command here. He says... um, can faith save him? Go back to chapter 1 for just a minute. Look at chapter 1 in verse 14. I want you to notice a few things. Here is an example of how, how um, words are doing one thing, but, but deeds might be doing uh, something else. Look at this in chapter 1 and verse 14. There's a command here to avoid temptation or deal with temptation by fleeing it. 
He says, be warned about this, brothers, because lust, when it conceived, brings forth sin, and in sin, when it is finished, brings forth what? Death. It brings forth death. We have to be careful about sin. It's possible for disobedient believers to face death. Carnal believers are everywhere in this early church. James is addressing not whether you might be justified in Christ here, that much has been settled on the cross, but whether you're allowing the truth of God to permeate your life. That's what he means when he says, can that faith save him? Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. He's talking to believers here. He says, this is brought, he says, um, in verse 18, sorry, he says, uh, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Speaking again to believers, go to verse 21. Chapter 1 and verse 21, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the encrafted word that is able to save your souls. To save your souls from what? From that downward spiral of sin. Believer, you're in danger of sin having a huge impact on your life. And if you don't live out the faith that you agree to, you're in big danger of sin overtaking your life and causing all kinds of destruction. And then maybe most significantly, I believe here, if you look at verse 22, as we mentioned, he says, be a doer and not just a hearer. Be a worker of the word. If you just do, if you just speak and don't do, you are self-deceived. We talked about that at length. But then he says this, back to go back to chapter 2 and verse 14. He says this, he says, can that faith save him? And I think this is a challenging thing because we know from the Word of God that, that, the, word, that the faith alone in Christ alone is what saves us. So what is he saying here? What kind of word is he saying? We know that the Bible is consistent in its message, so what is being said? When he says, what, can faith save him, and some of your Bibles might have a footnote or something here, that is the word faith has an article on the front of it in Greek, which means It is saying, can that kind of faith do the work of rescuing that person? Can that faith, the faith he just described, is a faith that you agree to, but there's nothing that's coming out of it. And the obvious hypothetical answer to this is no. He's anticipating a no answer here. This kind of faith does not have the power to rescue, does not have the power to save, because words that do not themselves communicate deep into the individual are not commitments, they're just words. That's why the Bible talks about having faith in Christ. The Bible often talks about trusting Christ. Believing on Christ is receiving and trusting Him. So the question I have here at the end is, what is He saved from? I, I think if He's saying that unless you do good works, your faith in Christ, is, is, he, is He just saying that your faith in Christ is null and void if you don't have good works? I don't think that's what He's saying. If, is James teaching, as you've heard from many Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups, that you're not saved by grace through faith, that you're saved by works? I've heard that. I've talked to many uh, Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses who come and they say, what about uh, works saved? You know, you're justified by works here. I think he's speaking of something more than eternal damnation. He's talking about being rescued, and in the context of this book, he's talking about being rescued from the effects and the damage of sin. In fact, there's no indication from James that he's talking about eternal damnation in hell. Everything he's talking about here has to do with the redeemed person, the saved person's life with God. And if they are rejecting God, if they're walking towards that, you're walking away from God, you're walking towards sin, you've already been saved from the penalty of sin through faith in Christ, and now you're being saved through the power of sin through progressive sanctification. One day you'll be saved from the presence of sin and glorification. The Bible talks about all these things as being saved. And here it's important for us to recognize that we often focusing, focus on telling unbelievers or sinners who don't know Christ to, to repent and believe in Christ as their Savior, to, 
to receive the gift of salvation, the grace of salvation through Christ alone. And once saved, these believers are called to live out that faith. You're called to be sanctified, to live out the faith of God. And I believe that's what James is referring to. So notice here, he says, if you, if you believe God, but you don't obey God, you won't receive the blessings of God. Because, because without works, you do not benefit you at all. What benefit is it, my brothers, if one says he has faith, but is not living out that faith? The phrase, can that faith save him, is important for us to understand what's going on there. Let's keep going. He says, words without works don't benefit others. Verse 15, And here he gives an example of how it is that this faith without works is played out. Notice the illustration given. Because we we, we don't have to really wonder what James is talking about. He tells us what he's talking about. This is the illustration of faith without works, or here I've called it faith without deeds. He says, if a brother or sister, verse 15, is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit. Here's a scenario. You have a brother or sister, a Christian, a fellow Christian in need. It's obviously a fellow Christian because it calls them a brother or sister, and then it says one of you. So within the relationship of the church, you see a brother, you see a sister who has a severe need. They are naked. That means they don't have the necessary clothes. They're freezing, and they don't have food. They're starving. And you go to them, and you say the right words. You have compassionate speech. One of you out of the group, it it literally means one from among you, out of the group of you in the church, goes to them and speaks compassionately. These are good words. Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. Now, in our context, that doesn't mean good things, right? If I said be warmed and filled, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But here, he's saying these are good words to say to people, but they're not good enough just to say words. Like, what good is it, my brother? The idea is, hey, I'm wishing you well. I hope you do well. But at least he didn't do what the Levite and the priest did with the Samaritan on the road, right? At least he didn't walk on the other side and ignore him. He at least went over and said something. Those are the words. He says the right things, but he doesn't do anything. The action is lacking. Look at the verse. But you do not give to them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? You see that? What benefit is it? He says, be warmed and filled, but he doesn't warm and he doesn't fill. His, his, his words are not matching his behavior. What does it profit? What good is it? What good are your positive words to this needy man? He doesn't need, he doesn't need warm words. He needs warm clothes. And you've said things without doing things. And basically, the application here is that words without action don't do any good to the people around you. Talk, as I said, is cheap. Words without works don't benefit anybody. People talk big talk, but do you live out those words? Notice this example in verse 15 and in verse 16, examples of believers being committed to what they agree upon, committed to their doctrinal statement. My question to you, are you a doer of the word or are you just a hearer? Let's look at this the next verse. He, he, points it, he puts it very pointedly and he says, faith without works is dead. Here's the summary statement of everything he just said. Here's a summary statement of faith. This, this also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith, as James has described it, speaking words only here, that is not accompanied by action, is ineffective, it's unhelpful, it's unprofitable, and I believe it undermines the very statement you've made. It has been unhelpful. It is dead. It's unable to rescue. If you say you love Christ, but you don't obey Christ, who am I to believe? right? Your words or your actions. John 14, 21 tells us, he who 
has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. You say you love God, but do you obey God? It's very straightforward. If you obey God, that's a way of showing love to him. Your claims mean nothing if your choices don't back them up. Speech and actions are not the same thing. I, I put here at the briefly at the end of this first point that, that a working faith is a profitable faith. Is your faith profitable to you and to others, or is it dead? Is it unhelpful? Is it unprofitable? Some questions for you. Do you believe Christ deserves your praise? Yes, I hope so, right? Do you believe Christ deserves your praise? Yes, you should. So then why don't you worship him? Why don't you sing when we stand to sing? You say, well, I don't have a very good voice. Don't, don't say that. I've stood next to lots of people who don't have good voices, and they sing because <laughs> they love Jesus. If you, if you believe, if you say, I agree, God is worth praising, then worship him. Then when we stand to sing, sing. If you don't know the, the words, look at the words. If you don't know the tune, if you can't read music, do your best. <laughs> right? Just do what you can. I, I, sing, praise to God. Oh, do you believe God loves you and is in control? Yes. Then why do you worry and fret as though he's not? We, our words and our actions are not beneficial. Our, our faith is only beneficial if it works itself out in how we live our lives. Do you believe God loves you? And yes, I believe God loves me. Then why do I sit around worry? We say these things so easily. Yes, God is great. Yes, God is good. But I don't know if I can trust him with anything. Right? That's what our actions are saying. When the moment becomes real to us, how do we act? Is our behavior consistent with what you say you believe? I really want to challenge us on this because in, in James 1.22, as I've said so many times, be doers of the word. Don't just be a hearer of the word and you'll have profitable faith, faith that works. And then he says this is a visible faith. In verse 18, we have a dis discussion with an imaginary debate partner here. And through this, James teaches us how we are to make our faith visible to other people. He says this, you cannot show your faith without doing something. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. Without your works, I will show you my faith. By my works, you believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So James's imaginary debate partner here has an objection on the distinction between one who speaks and one who acts. He says, oh, no, no. You see, I'll just show you my faith. And, and he says, well, I'll show you my faith by my works. And I have a, a chart here that I, I kind of, hopefully this will help you. He says, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Friends, it's impossible to show faith without doing something. Without works, it's impossible to show faith. It's just a, a word. It's just a speech. But it is possible. It's demonstrable to show faith by your commitments, by what you do. And as it relates to living out our faith, Faith and works are not in conflict because works and grace are opposite, but not works and faith. Works and grace are opposite. God gives us our faith. We, we receive his gift, his grace by faith, but the works come out of our life. We should, we should reflect that. James's reply is to show the absurdity. How can you do this? How can, how can I know what you're thinking unless you tell me? How many husbands have said that to their wives? How can I know what you're thinking unless you tell me? How many parents have said that to their kids? Teenager storms off to the room, won't talk. I want to know what you're saying. No. I want to know what you're thinking. No. Well, I can't help you then. 
Because I, I can't know. And then, and then when you say something, and then you do what you what you do, how can you know what's important, or how can you how can I know what's important to you unless you act on it? You have to demonstrate what you believe. Simply put, you cannot show faith without works. You can't show other people your commitments and faith without these commitments working themselves out in how you treat other people. You can't do it. In fact, he also says that agreement is not the same as trust. And he says, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And he's marking a distinction here between the word trust and believe. How we would use the word trust is in Christ, because the demons don't trust Christ. They, believe, they, they agree that He is but that's not the same as trusting. To agree is not the same thing as to trust. I would say, do you agree that God is, God knows everything? Do you agree that God sees everything you do? Yes. Then why do you close the door when you sin? Well, because I don't want anybody else to see me sin. Yes, but God sees. Right, but that doesn't count. (laughs) You You see how the conflict works? Here he says that it's not the same to agree. Do you believe he says that God is? Yeah, good. That's called agreement. Agreement in a truth is not what James is aiming to motivate us to do. He's not saying, I want you to agree with me. He says, I want you to trust God. Do you believe that God is? You're in good company. If you believe God exists, you're in good company. There's also demons who believe that God exists. I mean, they know God exists. But their response is not a belief or a commitment to God as if that was even possible. Rather, their response to knowing God exists is to rebel against God. And this is the case for a lot of people. A lot of people know that God is, but they rebel against God. In fact, there's an interesting thing that many, many people who, who do not believe God exists are very angry at that same God who does not exist. Right? They, they know the kind of God that they're angry about for not existing. And isn't it amazing that, that people, to know who that God is, is not the same as to trust in Him and to believe in Him. In fact, it says here, their rebellion against God, they tremble knowing who God is. They agree about God's existence. That's a certain kind of faith. It's an agreeing kind of faith. Do you agree that all men have, sin, have sinned? Good. Do you agree that Christ died for the sins of the whole world? You might even agree for that. Do you agree that Christ rose from the dead? Those are all facts you might agree to, but faith is more than agreement. It's trusting in a person. It's saying, I trust Jesus for my salvation. I put my trust in Him. I believe in Him, not just that I believe that. There is a visible faith here. There is a practical and helpful faith, and then there is thirdly a proven faith. He gives a couple examples of this kind of faith, what I call here proven faith. Look at verse 20. It says, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Do you want to know how this works? He's going to give this Jewish Christian audience two examples from the Old Testament to show proven faith, how it is that commitments worked out demonstrate themselves in action. He says, first, Abraham's faith fulfilled. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with His works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Look at verse 21. Let's walk through this verse by verse. He says, Abraham was justified by works, that he was declared righteous by his works, or he was vindicated by his works when he offered Isaac his son on an altar. What event is this talking about? It's important for us to go back and look at what he's talking about. Genesis 22 is the passage of Scripture we're dealing with. Genesis 22, Abraham 
is told by God to go and offer his son as an offering on an altar. And then look at verse 22. He says, do you see, it's proven faith, do you see that faith was working together with his obedience so that by this obedient act, his faith was completed, fulfilled, made perfect. It accomplished the purpose, often translated in the New Testament, this idea of finished. It, it, it completed, it showed the end of his faith. It showed the purpose of his faith. And so in verse 23, his faith is perfected. His scripture is fulfilled. In what way, could we ask, is Abraham justified by work? Because didn't Paul use Abraham to argue that he was justified by faith? He does. In fact, he uses this, this phrase, if you look at verse 22 or 23, Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That, that phrase is quoted here, and that, and I'm, I guess I'm asking the question, what point is he making? The story here begins with Abraham's righteousness in Genesis 15. And you don't have to turn there, but we're going to probably turn to Genesis 22 in a second. Genesis 15 happens, that's this quote is pulled from. Look at these verses here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Of course, Abram is the same name for Abraham just before his name was changed by God. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Lord, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born to my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So, so shall your descendants be. And here's our verse. And Abraham, he believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. So at Genesis 15, Abram, believing God, is called righteous. Now, what happens? My question is, what happens between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22? Now, some of you in Sunday school may have had this question on your sheet, and I wonder if you have some thoughts. What happened between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22? Well, in Genesis 16, we have Hagar. Abram goes to Hagar, and Ishmael is born. Now, wait a second. Didn't God just promise you that one will come from your own body? And he says, oh, that must mean that I need to go to my handmaid. And, and Sarah brings him her handmaid, and he goes to her. And then, and then we have Sarah laughs in the, next, in the next few chapters after God appears to them and tells them about a coming son of promise from her body. Not exactly the kind of faith you would expect. Abram then goes to Gerar. And while he's there, he runs into this guy named Abimelech. And he says, I'm scared that my wife, who's very attractive... They're going to take her into the harem and kill me, so I'm going to pretend like she's my sister, so at least they won't kill me. Now, wives, how would you like your husband to do that to you? Not a very good move, right? I don't know what the looks were like between the wife and the husband. She's like, are you serious right now? But he, he does it. He says, yeah, I mean, this is my sister. And so they take her into the harem. That's what kings did back in those days with traveling women, apparently. Took her into the harem, and then, but God comes to Abimelech and says, you better not go into this woman, because... This man is married to that woman, and you'll bring judgment on your house. And so Abimelech says, what have you done? And Abraham's like, my fault. Sorry about that. And, and uh, <clears throat> not exactly a pinnacle of faith at this point, right? And then you go to, you go to uh, Isaac, born in chapter 21. He's born. He's the child of promise. We have Isaac being born. And in chapter 22, the very next thing that God does, in fact, why don't you turn there? Turn to Genesis 22. We're going to look at several things here that help flesh out the story and help us understand the point 
being made in James chapter 2, Genesis 22, he says um, right at the beginning, it says that God, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, he said, here I am. Verse 2, he said, take now, notice the repetition, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, wait a second. God has made a promise that through a son of his body and his wife's body, that, that this son would be born, this would be the child of promise, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How is this going to work? And yet he has to trust God. He has to say, I, I guess the Lord knows what he's doing. I, it's amazing. I love this. This story tells us that the next thing Abraham does in verse 3 is he rises early in the morning. He doesn't wait. Uh, they let, doesn't let the day drag on. He gets his son and they go. And they go a, a three days journey into the wilderness. And when they get there, he has the, the, uh, the, the material laid on his son's back. Look at verse 5. Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Notice the confidence there that we will come back to you. He doesn't know exactly how this, we're told later, that Abraham believed that God could even raise him from the dead. He didn't know what would have to happen, but he knew that he would have to sacrifice. He was being called to give up the thing that he loved. And this is a crucial moment in Abraham's life, because if you look at Abraham's track record to this point, it's not exactly a good track record. Yet here he is being challenged to give up the thing that he loves dearly. In verse 7, we have a conversation here. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So the two went together. He had confidence that God could do something. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Look at verse 11. As Abram stretches out his hand to slay his son, I think it's amazing under, kind of side note here, an underappreciated uh, aspect of this is that Isaac was a strong young man at this point who carried all that wood up. The, he, he willingly laid down on that altar and allowed his father to bind him. And there he is bound by his father, verse 11. It says that the angel, as he rose his knife to kill his son, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. <clears throat> For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abram lifted his eyes and looked, and there was behind was a ram caught in the thicket by the thorns. And Abram went and took the ram, offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abram called the land of the place the Lord will provide, the name of the place the Lord will provide. And he said to this day, the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand of the sea which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham here obeyed the voice of God. He was, he was counted as righteousness, counted as righteous, but his faith was demonstrated there on the mountain. So what does justified mean here? In Paul's writings, we read Romans and Galatians, justified always, almost always means being declared righteous by God. But justified is a broader word than just that, including the idea here of vindication. 
And being vindicated means that you demonstrate to be innocent or correct or whatever the situation is. Vindication just proves the faith. Vindication is an affirmation of what is true. This is how James uses this word here. In other words, in the New Testament, in Luke 10, there's a man who wanted to justify himself and says, yes, but who is my neighbor? Even in Luke 7, many vindicated God. They affirmed his righteousness. But Abraham's faith, which clearly saved him and gave him God's righteousness, as James quotes in Genesis 15, was vindicated by his actions. That is, he is shown to have believed in God. We can see his faith on display in Genesis 22 that we could not see up until that point. If you look at what God says about, about Abraham's faith in Genesis 15, and if we had to make an assessment of Abraham's faith, I think all of us would have said, I don't know if he's truly believed. But God says his faith was vindicated, was demonstrated to be correct there at Genesis 22. Back to James chapter 2. We'll finish here with one more example. James chapter 2. As we look at verse 25, we see Rahab's faith demonstrated. Rahab isn't given quite as much space as Abraham, but a story is also important. She says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Another illustration here of faith being demonstrated or fulfilled. But instead of a patriarch, we have a non-Jewish woman, a prostitute who lived in Jericho. Joshua chapter 2 tells us a story. The spies go into Jericho and they find refuge in Rahab's house, her harlot house. And when they're there, she hides them from the guards that are coming. Now, I want you to just think for a second what that meant to her. She says later on, I believe the God of Israel. She says, the God of Israel, we are, we've heard about him and we are faint-hearted from him. We've heard how God dried up the Red Sea, how we've done all these things. And, and, and as soon as we heard our things, our hearts melted. We didn't have any courage anymore. She says, I, bear to, I beg of you, swear to me by the Lord, show kindness to me as, as, and to my father's house. And she is, she is begging the spies to show kindness to her. And, and they're in this fortified city. She is showing her faith, that her faith is that God was going to get rid of their city. God is going to destroy Jericho. How does she demonstrate this to the men who were there? How does she show her faith to these men? Because if the men, if the, if the soldiers had come knocking on the door and said, excuse me, um, do you have any soldiers here? She has two options. The first option is to turn in the soldiers and say, yes, they're uh, right around the corner. What, is that? what would that show? That would show that she would prefer the, the, uh, her own country's benefit, not the Lord's benefit. But instead she says, oh, no, no, they went another way. She betrays her own city in order to show her allegiance to the Lord. There, her faith is justified, her, her works demonstrate or vindicate her statement of faith. As we conclude, there is a concluding statement in verse 26. And like so many of his arguments, James comes back to the question at the end where he began. For as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What an analogy here. The word spirit means breath. It means wind. It means if your body has no breath, you can't do anything. It's impotent. Worse, it's died. By the same with faith, our faith, if not accompanied by the vindication of your choices, your thinking, your behavior, is not going to benefit you at all. And Christian, if you're living a life where you assent to a lot of truths, but you don't live out these truths in daily life, your life, your faith is not active faith, and that faith is not going to rescue you from the downward spiral of sin. In fact, he says that we have God's grace to live, God's 
power in the Holy Spirit indwells us. He marks us. He gives us power to change. And this is important. As we allow the Spirit more control over our bodies and over our lives, as we submit ourselves to God's power and God's grace, we see the transforming power, the transformation of what we agree to, to who we trust. You're, you, you should agree to these truthful things. And as you allow the Spirit of God to work in your life, He will start to transform your heart. So not only do you agree to them, you actually trust God. And I believe many believers today find themselves in a faith that doesn't work well. We agree to the truth from God, but our mental, our logical agreement with the Bible has not been internalized, so we don't trust Him and we don't obey Him. And this is the point I'm making here. Do you believe God does not tempt you with evil? Yes. Then why do you blame God for your sin? Do you believe God loves you? You should. So when bad things happen to you, do you get angry at God for allowing them to happen? Do you believe that when you ask God to forgive you of a sin, that He will forgive you of a sin? If you do, then why do you ask God to forgive you over and over again for the same sin? Do you believe that when Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life, he shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death into life, that he included you, that you're included in the whosoever? If you believe that, why do you come to God over and over again and ask him to redeem you if he's promised everlasting life to whosoever believes? When, when the moment comes, your faith will be visible. Often it's a matter of crisis. It's a, it's a matter of difficulty that strips away our pretense and shows us what's really happening in our hearts. And when God does that, friends, you need to take note. Because we make all kinds of claims, but when the rubber hits the road, often all of our claims are peeled back and what we truly believe is exposed. One of the funniest things about April Fool's is playing jokes on people. I love it. I don't like it as much as some of you like it. But you think about it, when someone goes behind you, let's say you're in junior high and you play the classic junior high trick. You go behind your friend and you say, there's a bee on your back. And that person starts screaming and starts swatting their back and jumping around and trying to get the bee off their back and they're running up against the wall and they're hitting their back against the wall. They're saying, did I get it? Did I get it? And then you say, ha, 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 April Fool's. And that person says, I didn't believe you. Wait a second. What we do shows what we believe. And so my, 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 my push to you all is not to make you question your salvation. I don't think it's the point of what James is doing. He's challenging us believers to be doers of the word, not hearers. He's saying, look, you believe a lot of things about God. That's great. What are you doing with it? Is your faith working? Is it profitable or is your faith stalled out? Is it a dead end? Have you taken a bunch of stuff in and not done anything with it? When God gives us those moments that peel back our heart and show us what we truly believe in, I beg of you at that moment, take notice. Confess that sin. Go to God and say, Lord, you showed me in this moment that I don't trust you like I should. I think for a lot of us, we have those moments. We say, Lord, thank you for showing me that. I, I need to ask your forgiveness, Lord. Please forgive me for my sin. You showed me my weakness, and I surrender my life to you now completely. Please forgive me. Help me to trust you like I should. And friend, that's how you have to live the life day by day as a Christian ought to live. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we ask as we surrender our hearts to you, as your word is 
spoken to us today through this word. I pray, Lord, this will be an encouragement for us and also a challenge, a, a rebuke for us who believe a lot of things about God, but our faith is not working like it should. And that faith can't, that kind of faith doesn't do anything. That kind of just agreement where it's not actually internalized, believing and working faith, it doesn't actually accomplish anything in the believer's life. And Lord, so today, I pray you would help us in the next few moments as we have some quiet time. I pray you'd help us to evaluate our hearts as you have evaluated us and help us submit the areas of our life that we feel are not fully submitted to you. That the truths that we do not fully believe and embrace and the works that we're doing that contradict or undermine our faith commitments. Lord, we confess those today as sinful and we come to you today asking you to purge us, to clean us so that we might be vessels fit for your use. Lord, I pray you'd work in our hearts in the next few moments as we have some quiet to meditate on these things that we would give our hearts to you fully. Lord, you are great, and your love overwhelms us and encourages us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to commit ourselves today to living out our faith and not just mentally agreeing to it. We ask your blessing as we sing now.